0: You may have heard this story before. Um, There were these two boys, brothers, who got in so much trouble. And if you're a parent of boys, you know how that goes. They got in so much trouble. And eventually, mom and dad just didn't know what to do with these boys anymore. They had tried everything. So as a last resort, they took those boys down to the church to talk to the preacher. The preacher set one of them out in the waiting room, brought the older one in, sat him down in front of his desk, looked at that boy. The preacher honestly didn't really know where to start, so he just tried this. He said, son, where is God? That boy didn't know what to say, uh, just kind of stared back at the preacher blankly. Preacher raised his voice, son, I said, where is God? God boy started to fidget a little bit, looked a little bit nervous. Then the preacher got to his preacher whisper and said, where is God? That boy finally had had enough, was scared to death, took off, ran out the door, stopped in the wedding room, grabbed his little brother and said, we got to get out of here. God is missing. And they think we took him. (laughs) Well, seriously, There are times, I think, when people ask, where is God? And perhaps the last few weeks have been one of those times with everything that's gone on nationally and and here locally. I mean, you start with the Boston bombing, and then you had the fertilizer plant exploding uh, just a few miles south here and west, and then you had the tornadoes in Cranberry and Cleburne, and then to top it off, this week you had a really uh, tragic uh, tornado strike in Moore, Oklahoma, just north of us. And people, a lot of people are asking, where is God in all of this? Other people aren't asking. Other people, often well-meaning, have answers. And usually at a moment of crisis, you hear some of these answers. This bumper sticker theology, this shallow thinking that rarely helps anyone and often hurts those who've been affected. The God never gives us more than we can handle, or the there's a reason for everything that happens, or the I guess God just needed a new quarterback up in heaven or a little ballerina up in heaven. We kind of cringe when we hear those trite bumper sticker answers, don't we? The good news is that if you go into Scripture, you see answers. And you see, Jesus Christ personally engage the suffering of the world, not just with his teaching, but with his life. He did not just watch us from above, but he chose to enter into our world, and we celebrate and we remember each week the sacrificial love of Jesus, where he knew personally what it was like to be insulted, to be rejected, to be arrested, to be unjustly accused. To be crucified. He entered into our suffering. And yes, he has something to say about our suffering. Interesting little scripture. You may have never heard this talked about in church before. Kind of a weird little scripture. But it's in Luke chapter 13. And perhaps, well, no, there's no perhaps about it. It was at a time when people around Jesus were hearing about and were talking about some suffering some disasters that had happened. So we'll pick it up in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 13, Luke. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Jesus said, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee? Jesus asked, is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. What about another disaster? What about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too there were these two tragedies in the news, these two headline events that people were talking about. One of them was an intentional act of evil. It was a massacre. Okay? Think Boston bombing. Another was sort of a, a random disaster, if you will. Right, The evil act was a mas- massacre per- perpetrated by Pontius Pilate Against Galileans, of which Jesus was a Galilean, of course, and they were going to church. They were at the temple. They were offering sacrifices to God, and they were senselessly cut down by the Romans. Think about that for a second. Where is God? People had to have been asking. Here are some some humble folks from the provinces. Who've come come down to big old Jerusalem to worship? They're just engaging God in worship. They're offering sacrifices, and right there, in the middle of church, they're killed. A few years back in my hometown in Missouri, I hesitate to tell this story for reasons that will become obvious. A few years back in my hometown of Neosho, um, my little town made the national news when on a Sunday morning, in a worship gathering, a gunman came in and killed the preacher. Right in the middle of church. People were asking, where is God in that? Others had answers. And you see that in the story. And you see Jesus answering their answers. Why did these Galileans die? Well, they must have been really bad people. They must have been awful sinners. They had it coming. You got to figure when something like that happens, God is out to get those people. Those were their answers. To them, Jesus said, "Not at all. It's not like that." And then the the tower that that falls down. Sort of a random event that happens there. In the southern part of Jerusalem, this rock tower, ancient tower, the Tower of Siloam topples over for no apparent reason. I don't know if it was shoddy construction or if the tower just couldn't bear the weight, poor engineering. It topples over. It kills 18 people. And some folks were taking that and they were surmising, based on that, those folks must have, we don't know what their sins were, but they must have had it coming. And again, Jesus does not accept that and says no in verse. In the midst of tragedy, the easy answer is almost always the wrong answer. And it's generally a very hurtful answer. When people thought they had these tragedies all figured out, Jesus steps in and says, not the way it is. Basically, Jesus is saying, look, if God is, is meeting this stuff out because people are sinners, then we're all toast. He says, all of you need to repent, all right? So I want you to write this down in your outline this morning. The first thing we see about Jesus and these easy answers, Jesus challenges the quick and easy explanations. He challenges the quick and easy explanations people give to answer genuine suffering. Is that why they suffered, Jesus asked? No, not at all. Not at all. Now, a lot of us think that way, though, and we may need to stop and consider ourselves. I mean, a lot of us think, you know, my wife left me. God must be punishing me. I lost my job. What have I done wrong, Lord? My child has been diagnosed with leukemia. Surely, There's some reason God has made this happen to me. He has decided for this to happen to me. But sometimes, as Romans chapter 8, verse 22 tells us, sometimes we just live in a fallen world. We just live in a world that is not what God originally intended it to be. We live in a world that has become marred and tainted, distorted by the enemy. It's a world where disasters happen. Romans 8 says it's a world that is frustrated. So, what all this means is that it's a huge mistake to either, one, assume that someone is getting what they deserve, or two, that God has willed for a disaster to happen. And I know there are lines of theology out there right now that are gaining popularity that say, oh, God wills for everything that happen. He has to will that. He's sovereign. Well, Jesus says no to a lot of these assumptions people make about why disasters happen. When it comes to suffering in the world, just say no to the easy moral or spiritual explanations of why they happen. And I take, I don't know, I'm glad. I I take some joy, I take some comfort in knowing that Jesus, the embodiment of God, the Son of God, that he reacted strongly and reacted confrontationally to some of the easy justifications people were giving out there. But Jesus is hardly distant. Jesus is hardly quiet when it comes to suffering. He experienced it like one of us, as we know. We turn to John chapter 11, though, and we see one of many real-life situations where Jesus takes on suffering where Jesus comes at suffering, where he frames it for us, and he shows us how we should respond to suffering. It happens in John chapter 11 that one of his very best friends, this fellow named Lazarus, was very sick. Lazarus has been moved into hospice care. Right? And two of Jesus' other friends were sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And so Mary and Martha know that Jesus can do something about sickness. So in John chapter 11, verse 3, they send a message to Jesus, who is not in Bethany of Judea, who is in another location. They send him word, verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. Telegram, Lazarus is sick, Jesus. And then we pick up the story in verses 7 to 15. So Jesus gets the message. His disciples are around him. He said to his disciples, then let us go back to Judea. There's a little history here, by the way, we see in verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And you're going to go back there? Moving down to verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Eh? Jesus had been speaking of Lazarus' death. His disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So verse 14, he told them plainly, look, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So now Jesus begins a journey. Actually, he's going to delay a couple of days, and he's going to begin a journey to Judea, to this town of Bethany, where he is going to show us how God chooses to respond to suffering and to tragedy. The first thing I want you to write down on your outline, and we see it right here in this initial opening of the story. Write this down as we think about how Jesus responded to suffering Jesus calls us to places that others may deem unsafe so that we can personally confront suffering. He goes to places and he calls us to places others may tell us are places that are not safe. They're hazardous so that we can respond to suffering. In other words, love risks. Love involves a risk. The disciples are troubled that Jesus is planning a return trip to Judea because we were just there and the community there or some part of the community there attempted to kill you. Not a good idea to go back there, Jesus. But love risks. So Jesus is going to make a journey that his friends consider to be too dangerous to make. But to engage others in compassion we may end up in some places that our friends or our parents or our colleagues don't think are very safe. Love often shows itself through the risk it takes to care for another person. We also see number two on your outline this morning. Jesus invites us to trust that He has the answer. He has the answer even when we don't. And I would put in parentheses there, we don't and we won't, okay? He has the answer even when we don't and we won't. So love believes. And he says, all this is happening so that you may believe. The disciples are confused. They're confused as to whether as to why Jesus would go back to this place that is dangerous, where he almost lost his life. And we know it's in Judea that he will lose his life in a short matter of time. They don't understand this talk about Lazarus falling asleep. What's all this about if he's asleep? Just wait it out, he'll be fine. Finally, they don't understand if he's sick and dying. Why, as verse 6 mentions in chapter 11... Why does Jesus delay by days his trip to go see Lazarus? Jesus hears his friend is dying, and he says, we're going to go help, but then he doesn't pack his bags. They wait around a couple of days. None of this seems to make sense from their point of view. And if we were there, I think you could say from our point of view, it didn't make much sense. Later on, Mary and Martha, when Jesus finally shows up, they don't understand what's going on. I mean, when Jesus finally rolls into Bethany with his disciples, there is a funeral that's going on. There are mourners all around. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And they don't understand Martha comes to Jesus and says, if you had gotten here in time, Lazarus would still be alive. A little bit later, Jesus has the exact kind of same question from from Mary. Mary says, if you had gotten here in time, he'd still be alive, Lord. They don't understand. And we don't always understand. We often don't understand. Jesus tells us in verse 14, There will be things we don't understand. He knows what's going on. Those are opportunities to believe in him. It's a message of faith, an invitation to faith. We may not understand why things happen. We may not be on board with what happened, what God is doing or not doing, or at least what we think he's doing or not doing. And in a moment like that, we choose to believe Jesus answers Martha, by the way, the very powerful statement in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you, do you believe this? He asks Martha. I believe he asks us. Do you believe this? Jesus uses a moment of confusion, a moment of doubt, a moment of tragedy to say, Martha, have faith, believe. He uses a funeral. He uses a place of mourning to talk about resurrection. To point forward to hope. You know, we see, when we see a funeral oftentimes, and when non gospel people, non kingdom people experience a funeral, it is a a hard stop. It is an end. It is a place where there is death and despair. Jesus invites us to see from a different perspective, to have hope, and to trust in the promise of life. Those aren't easy answers, those are hard things. For us, to walk in hope and to believe is is often very hard. But Jesus invites us to do that. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. Now, if you have an NIV, it's going to say he was troubled. Not sure what the King James says here, but we'll get to that in a moment. This is the new living. When he saw other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up, Within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. Some said, This man healed a blind man. Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? Verse 38 Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave, with the stone rolled across its entrance, entrance, rolled the stone aside, Jesus told them. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word here for d- deeply troubled. A lot of syllables. Um, it can be translated as troubled. More precisely and narrowly, it can be defined as to roil with anger or to snort With rage. Um, It is to feel a sense of indignation. Jesus wasn't simply troubled. He wasn't just sad. He was also angry. I think we can identify with that a little bit. When an elementary school is blown away in a tornado and children die... When a bomber blows up folks who just showed up to watch the end of a race, we experience shock, we experience some grief, even if we aren't directly connected with it. At least some hint of grief and shock. And very often that shock and grief turns into, at some point, some anger. What did those people do to deserve that? That's wrong. Why are those parents having to bury their children? There's no good reason for that. Jesus is angry. He's not angry with Lazarus for dying. He's not angry with Martha and Mary. He's not angry with his disciples. He's not even angry with God. But Jesus is angry. He's angry at a fallen world where things are not as they should be, and he knows it. He's angry at a place where disaster strikes, where premature death strikes. He's angry with an enemy who has warped God's creation into a place of sickness, of death, and mourning. Jesus shares our pain. He shares the grief. He shares the anger. He shares the loss. He shares that with us when a loved one dies. He shares the shock of of anger when he sees unjust suffering and and we say this isn't right. He shares that. So number three, I want you to write this down. This is perhaps the most important thing we see in this story. Number three, Jesus asks us to share the pain of those who grieve. Love feels. So love risks, love believes. Well, love feels. Jesus wept. Jesus broke down and cried. He didn't just watch impartially as people suffered. He grieved with them. That's what God does. He grieves with those who suffer. And He calls us to mourn with those who mourn. The final thing we see from Jesus is this. When He's in Bethany, number four, Jesus asks us to engage the suffering of the world through service. We may not be able to cure the wound that was opened, make things better normally. We can't but still we enter in through service. Love acts. Love risks, love believes, love feels, love acts. Go back into the story. Verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell is going to be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of these people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, Unwrap him, let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. In Bethany, many believed in Jesus. Why? He saw resurrection power firsthand. They saw a loving Savior mourn with them. And then they saw this Savior do something amazing to turn the misery upside down. So we're not The takeaway from this is we talk about love acting. It's not like we're going to walk around and visit all the funerals in the DFW area and ask corpses to rise up out of caskets. That would just be kind of weird. (laughs) So, what do we do to interrupt cycles of suffering and grief with compassionate service? What do we do? Where, where, Where are we? Where are we when the sky is falling? We know where God is. He's not giving quick, easy explanations or rationalizations for bombings and explosions and tornadoes and hurricanes. It's not what God's doing. The gospel says, though, that in Jesus, he runs into our unsafe world. Where is Jesus? Jesus is sharing the pain of those who grieve. Where is he? He's acting in a love that's saturated with suffering. Where is he? He's pointing to a resurrection. God isn't just coming up alongside us and mourning with us. He does that. He's also pointing ahead of us to hope, to resurrection. And so like Jesus, we grieve with those who suffer. We feel anger at a world that has been stained by the enemy, but we still believe. We believe what? We believe in resurrection. We believe that God has something unimaginably better planned than what we're seeing on the nightly news. That's what we believe. Paul, who knew something about suffering, wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's not dismissing suffering. He's not saying it's no big deal. He's not saying get over it. But he is saying factually, when I consider the glory, when I consider the resurrection, when I consider the hope, there is no comparison. Brothers and sisters, when we mourn with those who mourn, when we weep with those who weep, when we serve those who are hurting, when we point to Jesus, when we point to resurrection, we are pointing to hope. I don't know if y'all do Twitter, um, even if you don't, you may have seen the stories that this tornado provoked, this, this, this Twitter war, I suppose, where you had a lot of people posting things, putting hashtag pray for Oklahoma, celebrities and regular folks pray for Oklahoma. And then you had on the other side, Ricky Gervais and others who were using it as an opportunity to kind of challenge that and to say, don't pray for Oklahoma, do something about it. Pay for Oklahoma was their hashtag. Send money to the Red Cross. Neither side necessarily was behaving well. Although those who say pray for Oklahoma, amen, I hashtag that as well. But it was an opportunity, I think, for people to think that perhaps a Christian response is more than simply a, a kind thought, although sometimes it's all you've got to offer is your prayers. Sometimes, though, you need to do something Beyond that, you need to be the hands and feet of Christ. On the other hand, I know a lot of people up I 35 here, and most of the folks I know who suffered in the tornado, they don't need Ricky Gervais's cash. They're fine, they've got insurance, money, material, they're fine. What they need, though, are prayers, and what they covet are prayers, and what blesses them are our prayers. But what I can tell you is this: When we mourn with those who mourn, when we weep with those who weep, we point to hope. And I just think about what this family is up to. I know God has a lot of families. He has a well. He has one family, but He has a lot of communities of people around this city and around this world. But here at Preston Crest, you guys know you see it in the bulletin each week. We got a, a group of teens going to New Orleans this summer. They're still recovering from Katrina and from other. Disasters that have happened since then, they're still rebuilding, and so we're going to go. We're not just going to watch from the sideline, and our twe—our our, teens will be there. Another group is going to go shortly to Guatemala, going to take their vacation days and their hard-earned cash to go spend time in Guatemala doing a medical mission. And that may seem strange to some people, that they would use their money and their their vacation to do that but love acts you know my daughter and i are going to go with a, a group from preston crest to ghana this summer to the orphanage there the village of hope so faced with with disasters faced with despair faced with destitute children or drug addicts love doesn't simply sit on the sideline it prays sometimes when it can it gets personally involved and serves in the name of God. And we point to the resurrection, we point to life, we point to Jesus. We believe, as as children of God, we believe, not everyone does, but we believe that that tragedy will end in triumph. We believe that, in the end, hurt and injustice in the world will be swallowed up in resurrection. That's what we believe. And the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky writes, Something that really, I think, describes our hope. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions contradictions, will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale... At the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. And so we point to resurrection this morning. We don't have easy answers but we point to resurrection. We act, we serve, we feel, we believe.